Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. How you doing? Everybody warm enough? Hope so. All right. If not, bring a coat because it's hot up here. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Well, uh, I have the tremendous privilege this morning of welcoming a new member of our church, uh, Miss uh, Miss Julie Ross. And uh, Julie, if you'd come on up. Uh, just as you're on your, as she's on her way, uh, I'll just talk, tell you a little bit about membership. Um, a lot of times people go, well, why do you have members of the church? People who uh, are designated as members who uh, get to vote versus the rest of us who come and are not members. What's that about? And essentially what it boils down to is this. Uh, the New Testament recognizes uh, two, two different kinds of people who are part of a church. Uh, people who are believers in Jesus Christ, who are committed to following Him, who know Him and evidence that by the way that they live their life. And they are considered to be part of the church. And then there are other people who are uh, recognized as folks who attend and uh, and who may be believers, who may not be believers, but we don't know for sure. Well, you can't really tell. They, they simply attend. And uh, we want to recognize that within our church as well and maintaining a distinction between those that we are confident of their faith in Jesus Christ and those uh, about whom we are not. And so we designate those about whom we are confident of their faith in Christ uh, members and we allow them certain privileges, uh, like voting on staff and budgets and these kinds of things. But also, uh, there's a, a level of accountability for ministry and for the conduct of your life and for um, the way that you uh, display Christ in the community as part of our corporate witness as a church. And so Julie has uh, been examined by the elders, and we are confident that she, in fact, does know the Lord and desires to live for him and walk with him. We have uh, examined her life and her, her profession of faith, and we are uh, we're committed to standing with her as part of the body of Christ in, in public testimony of this is what the Christian life looks like as it is lived out. So uh, as we enter into our membership process, there is a, there's a, a, a ceremony that we do up here. Uh, where there are public vows that are made. So if you'd slide on over here, you've got to stand up in front of the mic. All right. Uh, and the questions we will ask and the answers to those questions, if you affirm these things, is I do. You may remember doing this at one point. Um, do you confess faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and do you desire above all else to live for Him? If so, signify by saying, I do. Do you declare your intention to live in submission to the doctrine of the church as expressed in its confession of faith and in obedience to its membership covenant? If so, signify by saying, I do. I do. Do you promise to support this congregation with your prayers, with your faithful attendance at its services, by your encouragement of our members, the willing use of your gifts and talents in its ministry and the giving of your means, as God prospers you, if so, signify by saying, I do. I do. Then, 
It is my privilege, first of all, to welcome you to membership. Thank you for joining with us, Julie. And also uh, to give you a charge from God's Word. Uh, this is Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray for Julie. Father, we are grateful that Julie Ross has entered into covenant community with your people that uh, according to your word and according to the standards therein she has uh, committed herself not only to faith in Jesus Christ but to living for him and to walking in a way that pleases him and to uh, living with uh, great joy in a day in a day-by-day relationship with him but also longing for the day of his coming and Father, we pray your blessing on Julie and on her daughter Annie as they uh, walk with us uh, day by day in worship and in service to you. Uh, Father, we pray that you would protect them and provide for them, that you would provide them with places of ministry and service to your body, and that uh, we as your people, Father, would celebrate with them our common membership in your family. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Julie, if you'd join me in the back here a little, in a little bit as uh, we greet people and everybody will want to welcome you and celebrate with you. So uh, thank you thank for joining you. us, sister. Okay. Last call for Children's Church. All right. Uh, if you missed that, uh, that's going on right now. Now. Uh, we're going to start a new, uh, a new series here this morning through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, so if you'd make your way there, and as you do, I want to tell you a little story. In the 1920s and 30s, the organized crime syndicate known as the Chicago Outfit ruled its namesake city. And heading it up was a notorious murderer and pimp named Al... Capone. In July 1928, Capone moved his headquarters from the downtown Chicago uh, Metropole Hotel to a, a suite at an, another nearby hotel that he owned at the time called the Lexington Hotel. And Capone ran his various criminal enterprises, primarily uh, uh, murder, prostitution, uh, illegal gambling, and protection and the protection racket from there until his arrest in 1931. About 50 years later, a construction company had, had uh, been hired to renovate the building for a new owner, and they were in the middle of renovations on the building, and they discovered inside some unusual features. One of the things they discovered was an indoor shooting range and a series of secret tunnels, one of which had its origin right behind the medicine cabinet in Capone's own suite. And these tunnels all connected to various uh, Chicago outfit-owned brothels and bars so that in the event of a police raid, all of Capone's guys could make their escape out of the hotel. As they continued to investigate, they also discovered a hidden 
vault. And that discovery was a sensation. And on hearing that news, a newly unemployed reporter organized a two-hour television special called The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults that was broadcast live on April 21st, 1986. A medical examiner was present on the scene in case bodies were found in the vault. Agents of the IRS were there to seize whatever of Capone's ill-gotten gains they would find in the vault. And there was eager anticipation by 30 million people as they were glued to their television sets, including one 12-year-old Joe Horn. And we were all there watching this unfold. And after two hours, they opened the vault. And we were like, ooh, I wonder what's in, right? And they opened it, and guess what they found? Dirt and empty liquor bottles. <laughs> okay. After which I'm told the reporter at the time, one young Geraldo Rivera, went and emptied a few liquor bottles across the street of his own. Um, because it was a spectacular embarrassment. It still ranks on the all-time list, whoever keeps these things, of the events with the greatest gap between presentation and delivery. Okay? The mystery of Al Capone's vaults was a gigantic disappointment. I bring all this up because in the last book of your Bible, you have an unveiling that happens. In fact, that's what the word revelation means. It, it's from the title, it's from the, it gets the title from the first verse, first few words in the verse that says, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's a word that means the unveiling, the pulling back of the curtain to see what is behind. And I'll promise you that in Revelation, there is no gap between the expectation and the reality. That there is no, that there is no uh, hype about who Jesus is that is presented in this book. That you will not be disappointed in coming to understand who Jesus is revealed to be. That in fact, what we will find in this book is not empty liquor bottles and dirt, but eternal and lasting treasure. Amen? So I want to uh, pray uh, for us, and then I want to read God's Word with you and study it together. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I am convinced that I am not fully adequate to the task before me of declaring your word to your people. And there is surely a gap between my ability and the majestic nature of your word. Father, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might declare it faithfully as I should. And Father, I pray that you might open the ears and hearts of your people to receive your word with joy and expectation as we're seated here together and with transformation that comes by your Holy Spirit in the days to come. Father, we pray 
In Jesus' name, amen. This is what God's Word says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the hour is near. Now, verse 1 begins by describing what kind of book this is. Again, this is a book of revelation, a book of unveiling what had not been seen, what had not been known before, what had been hidden. Now, let me ask you a question. How many times during Jesus' earthly ministry do we see His glory revealed? One. And it's to a small group of people. It's to a small group of people. Three guys, Peter, James, and John, go up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And while they're standing there, do you remember? What happens? Jesus is transformed in their vision, and he's clothed in dazzling white. And Moses and Elijah stand there with him. And I love what it says about Peter. It says, Peter, not knowing what to say, said, <laughs> Lord, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> we should get three tents and build one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. This will be great. Okay. Sounds like me. Not knowing what to say, he said. Right? And, uh, and he's just, they're just amazed just amazed because the man that they have been spending time with over these months and years of Jesus ministry did not look like that all the time amen what he looked like normally was a Galilean peasant whose dad was a carpenter who may have descended from a great royal line that was historic but whose current circumstances had taken a, a steep drop-off since. This is a guy who is literally wearing the, all of the clothes that he owns. And then all of a sudden, there's this moment of an unveiling and a transformation. And they see him as he really is. And they are amazed. This book is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That we don't see Him as we sing about at Christmas. Remember? We sing that song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that goes, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. Right? We don't see Him in this book, Veiled in flesh. We see the curtain roll back and we see Jesus as he is in his resurrected and ascended form. As the mighty God, as the Lamb who was slain and now rules, we see him as the King of the kings of the earth. We see the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
That's what kind of book this is. In addition to that, uh, this revelation is not something that was invented out of someone's head. You know, sometimes people, people think about the inspiration of Scripture that way. Like, you know, Paul was sitting on a hill some, somewhere, you know, he saw a beautiful sunset, and he's like, oh, Romans, and he penned it, right? That's not how it works. That may be the way that a songwriter, you know, writes a song, but that's not how divine inspiration works. And in fact, it's not at all how John's writing of this book came to be. If you look at the scriptures here, what it says is that there's a chain of custody, if you will, that God, through the Son, speaks to the angels. And then the angels speak to John, the apostle, and then John writes down what the angels revealed to him. From God the Father, through the Son, to the angelic realm, to John, to us. That is the chain of custody of the revelation of Jesus Christ. John, it says, John, John says about himself that he wrote down everything that he saw. That he would fulfill God's purpose. And what was God's purpose? The scripture says to make known to his servants. Who's that? Look around. Uh, that's all of us. Okay. To show his servants the things that must soon take place. In other words, the things that are going to take place and will take place quickly. And he says that he is God's faithful witness to these things and accurately records the testimony about Jesus Christ in these pages. Now, verse 3, we get a, a blessing to the person who reads this book out loud. Amen. And to those who hear it read. Amen. Now, this is, the, this is, the, uh, this is an allusion, if you will, to the ancient practice where... Uh, we have a tremendous privilege, different from what the ancient church had, in that you have in, in your hot little hands a Bible. You can even get it on your phone for free. The ancient church did not have that ability. In fact, if you don't have a paper copy of the Bible, we'll give you one. We would love to put God's Word in your hands. But they didn't have that privilege of the Scripture collected and and printed for them to read. What they would do is they would gather as many of the books of Scripture that were handwritten as they could. And then one person would stand and read and everyone else would listen to hearing the Scripture read. And that was how you became familiar with what the Scripture was. You had to listen as it was read to you. And, you know, if you wanted, you could, go and you could go to the church and you could read the Scripture for yourself, but you couldn't take it out of the building. In fact, in the medieval church, they kept the copy of the Scriptures chained to the altar so nobody would carry it off, <laughs> right? Because it was a valuable thing. And so John announces God's blessing to those who read it, out loud to the congregation and to the members of the congregation who hear it. And, look at this, and who keep what is written in it. Who keep 
what is written in it. The word keep there is another, another way to render that is obey. Who not only hear it, but do it. Right? One of the one of the all time great responses when someone says, "I don't," you know, those of you who are parents, I don't know why we're reading this part of scripture again. I already know this. You know, you know what I say. Do you do it? <laughs> well, no. Well, then apparently we need to read it again <laughs> because you don't know it until you do it. Right? If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, according to Jesus, right? And so, so John is tied onto that, and he's saying, look here, God's blessing has come for those who read it, those who hear it, and those who do it. Those who keep it. And there's an urgency to the doing of God's word because the time, the scripture says, is near. Now, let me just explain something to you about the, the words for time that are there in your Bible. Okay? There are two different words for time in Greek. Our English Bibles, are, our English New Testament is translated from Greek. There are two different words for time. One is what we think of as time, which is, uh, what time is it? It's 11.19, by the way, in case you're curious. Right? Um, chronological time that's not the word that John uses here he's not talking the time is near to Halloween chronologically he's talking about the, the other word for time is the, is the word that refers to the era the epic the, um, the season for the fulfillment of these things is near that's the word he uses that in other words, uh, whether you know it or not, from the resurrection of Jesus until Jesus returns, you are in, according to the Bible, the last days. Because there is nothing yet to be fulfilled in God's plan and His purposes except the coming of Christ. And that therefore the time from God's perspective for these things to be fulfilled is near. Let me give you the only reason, according to the scriptures, why Jesus has not yet returned for his church. You ready? In, this is from Second Peter. Peter tells us, why hasn't God returned? And he says, dear friends, God is not slow in keeping his promise, but he is patient with you. Because he wants all men to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, God is not sitting up there going, when was Jesus supposed to come back? Was it this year? I can't remember. Okay. He is saving a people. God is active in saving a people. And therefore, he has not sent Jesus to claim those people because not all of them have come to Christ yet. I personally am very happy that Jesus did not return and judge the world in 1975 because I was not a Christian then. Some of you are going, yeah, man, me too. Uh, 
some of you are maybe more recent than that. I'm really glad that Jesus didn't come back in 2001 because I didn't know Jesus then. I'm really glad Jesus didn't come back in 2014 because I wasn't a Christian then. I'm really glad he didn't come back in 2018 because I wasn't a Christian then. Jesus is saving a people. And so he waits for all the people who will be part of his kingdom to be saved and then the end is coming. But we are in the last days, men and women. And so, we need to be about the business of obedience. We need to be about the business of obedience. When my dad, when I was growing up living in his house, he would give an assignment. And this is what he would say to me. Boy, you do not have all day. And what he meant was, if you wonder where I get some of these funny expressions I use from time to time, you can blame him. All right. But he would say, boy, you do not have all day. And what he meant was that, that you need to uh, apply yourself to the task. I've got other things that I need you to do, and this is number one on the list of things. So get busy. And what John is saying here when he says the time is near is precisely that, that you need to get busy being obedient to Jesus because he is coming back. He is coming back. Let's read on here. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, one, what we see in these verses is that one of the blessings for obedience to God's revelation about Jesus is recorded in John's letter to the seven churches. This, this whole book is a letter that's meant to be read in a circular way. In other words, uh, when, these, when this church reads it, pass it to the next one. And the, the churches are addressed in the order you would encounter them along the road if you started from Ephesus in a chain down the same street, essentially. So, in other words, you know, if, if John were writing this letter to the, to the seven churches, he might say, well, send it to Chillicothe Bible Church, and then to Chillicothe Christian Church, and then to Rome Baptist, and then all the way down 29. And that's the idea of this letter, is that it's going to be read all the way down by the churches, and they're along the same route. And also, the number seven in Scripture is the number of completeness, the number of fullness. And these seven churches we're going to look at, that's the, the point of this series that we're going to get to, is to look at these, the, these letters at the beginning in the first three chapters of this book and see what God had to say to each of these churches because they represent seven different types of churches and seven different types of Christians that fit into them. And there is both correction and blessing that is given out to these seven churches. And so I want to look carefully at one of the blessings that is given to people who read this letter. You see what it is? Grace and peace. 
grace and peace. As you obey God, grace and peace are yours. And we tend to skip over when we read the introductions to some of these letters in the New Testament. We skip over grace and peace. But you know what we need as sinners more than anything else in all the world? Grace. And you know what we get when we receive it by faith in Jesus Christ? Peace. I have a good friend that I talk to every week. And one of the things he says to me is, you know, I found out you can either have an exciting life or you can have a peaceful life. He says, in my former life, it was real exciting. Before I knew Jesus, it was real exciting. It included time spent in various uh, orange jumpsuits as guests of various government entities, right? It was real exciting, but it was not real peaceful. It was hard. But God gives peace as we obey Him as a result of having given us grace. It's found; These things are found in an obedient relationship with God. And notice, it's not just any God. It's the triune God that we receive grace and peace from. It's not some God we invented out of our heads. Look at, at what... John says how he describes him. From him who is and who was and who is to come. That order is significant. John is saying, he's addressing, he's describing the Father, God the Father. And he says, first of all, that he is the one who is. The only God who exists. And he existed, he exists not only in the present, he also existed in the past, and he will continue existing into the future, into the into eternity. How long does eternity? Uh, it's eternity. When does it end? Never. He always was, always is, always will be. He is the eternal existing God. And it says, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, don't let that confuse you. There are not seven Holy Spirits. All right? There's one Holy Spirit. But John describes him as the seven spirits because, again, seven is the number of completion, of fullness. And each of the seven churches that are being addressed receive the Holy Spirit in his fullness. And so he describes him as the seven spirits who are from God. Now, that, if that confuses you, don't let it confuse you. It's one Holy Spirit, but it's a poetic way of describing Him in His fullness going out to these seven churches. And He describes Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, and look at how He's described. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, or of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here you get the three aspects of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus was, uh, was ministering on earth before the cross, what is He? He is the faithful witness. He is the one who tells us accurately what God is like. So at one point in His ministry, Jesus says to Philip, Philip says, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus says back to Philip, 
Philip, have you known me so long that you do not know me? To, to, to know me is to know the Father. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. I'm just like him. And all the disciples kind of look at Jesus and go, you know, like the RCA dog hearing the master's voice come out of that machine, right? They just kind of cockeyed looking at Jesus. They don't get it. But, it's, but they get it later. They get it later. Jesus is the faithful witness about who God is. And then, if you remember, the, the end of his ministry climaxes and culminates in his crucifixion and death. And he becomes, within 72 hours, the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn is a New Testament term conveying the idea of the preeminent one and the one who receives the majority of the inheritance. He is the one who, upon his resurrection, becomes chief heir of all that belongs to the Father, and who part of his inheritance will be, guess what? You and me as he raises us likewise from the dead. And so he is firstborn among all of the people who would die. And be raised to life. And he is the ruler of the kings on the earth. Now that he has been raised from the dead. He is now and forever shall be ruler of all of the rulers that there are. Every rule and authority whether good or evil. Uh, on all of the earth. Anywhere. Any place. Any time. Is ultimately under the power of Jesus Christ. And Jesus can raise men up and he can take them down in an instant according to his plan and purpose and desire. He is the ruler of all of the kings of the earth. And what John is telling us here is this. We urgently need to obey God's revelatory word to us about Jesus Christ. And if we do, then we receive blessing from the triune God. And if we do that, then we will also bring glory to Jesus Christ, the Almighty. I want to look with you at verses 5 through 8 here now. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood... And made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now these verses begin with a doxology, a prayer of praise to our Lord Jesus. I think that is because as John reflects on who God is, he can't help himself. He has to praise Jesus. And so he does so by celebrating what, not only who Jesus is, what his roles have been, but who he is for us. And so he starts by saying, 
to Him who loves us. Think about that for a minute. We, we sometimes just breeze by that, don't we? That we, I mean, we almost, in fact, even take it for granted. Like, you know, yeah, Jesus loves me. This I know. You know, that's a song we teach little kids. And we, and, and we go, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I mean I'm, after all, I'm kind of cute and naturally lovable, right? I mean, my, even my wife agrees, right? Um, and we don't think about the fact that Jesus loves us. Not because we are lovable, but in fact, in spite of the fact that we are not. In spite of the fact that we are sinners. In spite of the fact that we, if God judges us according to His righteousness, we all deserve to go to hell immediately. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. We need to go now. To Him who loves us. And who, out of His love for us, paid for our sins and set us free from them by His blood. You got any friends that would die for you? I got one. I got Jesus. Who laid down His life to set me free from sin. And so do you. And He made us a kingdom. The word there is interesting. It doesn't say He gave us a kingdom. That He made us a kingdom. In other words, that when God gets His people together, they're going to compose His kingdom. They will be His people and He will be their God. And the reign of Christ over His people is the kingdom. He made us a kingdom. And He made us priests to His God and Father. Did you know you're a priest? Probably don't have anybody address you as reverend or father as you go down the street, right? But according to the Scriptures, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are a priest. You, what is a priest's job? A priest's job is to convey God's Word to people who need it. So guess what our job is? To convey God's Word to people who need it. Amen? You are a priest. You are an ambassador before God, uh, from God uh, about God to people who need to know Him. God not only saved us, He gave us a job. And our job is to declare His message to people who need to hear it. Because we're priests of the living God. He says, to Him be glory and dominion forever. Because Jesus is deserving of both glory and rule because He is the God who loves us, who freed us from sin, who made us a kingdom and gave us a priesthood. He deserves glory and rule. Amen? We agree with John on that. Amen. He deserves that. And, it says, verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds. Don't miss that word, behold. Okay? It's a very, it's a biblical word. And we kind of are like, 
you know, hark, behold, you know, and it's, we, we, it seems kind of funny to us. But you know what that word means? It, it's a word that means pay attention. <laughs> Notice this. Wake up. He is coming with the clouds. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth. It's a word that's meant to grab your attention. God, when he appeared at Sinai, appeared with the clouds. When Jesus spoke of his coming, he said, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds. When God appeared to the people of Israel through the desert wandering, He appeared in a cloud of glory that rested over the tabernacle. When the temple was built, He appeared in a cloud of glory above the temple. And when He comes back, He is coming with the clouds. And it says, every eye will see Him. That's significant. Because when Jesus was resurrected, He appears to His disciples, but He does not appear to everyone in a way that they can see Him. I don't know what the appearance of Jesus with the clouds will be like, and I do, but I do know the earth is about 25,000 miles in circumference. But somehow, when he appears in glory, every eye on the planet will see him. If that doesn't scare you just a little bit, it should. <laughs> okay? Because the God that we worship is glorious and great in his power. And every eye will see him. It says, even those who pierced him. What are they talking about? He's talking about the Jewish people who will all of a sudden recognize they missed the Messiah. And they will come to worship him. And all the other people who are on the earth at his coming in glory with the clouds will wail on account of him. What does that mean? It means that they will realize too, but not in faith, but in fear of His coming. They will be among those the Hebrews talks about as those who shrink back and are destroyed. They are not looking for Him to come. They're, they will be afraid when He appears. And then the, 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 there's two words there in your text, even so. Those words are John's way of underlining the point. He's saying this will happen. Amen? Amen. It will happen. And now look at verse 8. This is the Lord Jesus speaking, revealing Himself to us. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Uh, they are also Jesus' title for Himself. The idea is that Jesus is omniscient because from the, from the first of knowledge to the last of knowledge, I know it all. He is also the eternally existent one who is and who was and who is to come. So He is the all-knowing, the eternal, and what's the last, the last word? The all mighty jesus is omniscient he is eternal 
He is omnipotent. And the point that we're supposed to get out of all of this is this, is that you're getting glimpses of the glory of the resurrected Christ. And you see that He is the eternal Son of God the Father, the One who sends forth the Spirit in His fullness to all the churches that He establishes and of which He is the head. We see references in this, in this chapter to the prophecies that he will fulfill, to the glory of his coming, to the judgment that will come on every person in every tribe and every nation who have rejected him, and salvation that will come to the Jewish nation who missed his first coming. We see his threefold ministry as faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is our Savior. This is the Son of God whom we worship. And God the Father, according to the Scripture here, gave this revelation about the Son, through the Son, Jesus Christ, to the angels who revealed it, to the John the Apostle who wrote it down for us. And when we see God's revelation about Jesus in these verses, we ought to do two things. Number one, we should be filled with hope. We should be filled with hope because we know that the time is near for the fulfillment of these things and for our final salvation to take place and for the Savior to come back to get His people. And that should fill us with hope. By the way, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're on the winning side. Amen? Amen. You're on the winning side. In fact, in fact this is... The way the scripture presents the way this is going is like if you are watching, oh, well, no, it's not use the bears. They haven't won anything in a while. But um, it's like you're watching, it's like you're watching the Green Bay Packers play the Miami Dolphins, okay? And they're up 87 to zero. And you're just watching the clock tick down. Okay, it's like we're up 87 to nothing. It's the fourth quarter. How much longer is this game going to go? <laughs> okay. And that is essentially the presentation we have of Jesus, that he is overwhelmingly victorious over every evil person and kingdom and force in the universe. And we are waiting for the salvation of the last of God's people as the clock ticks down. And so we have tremendous hope because the victory is already won. But in addition to that, there's still a game to play. There's still a game to play. And still an expectation that in light of the glory of this person whom we worship, who loves us and freed us from sin and, gave us a, and made us a kingdom and gave us a priesthood, that we are to be obedient to him. Now is not the time for half-hearted obedience, for, for partial commitment. For thinking, well, you know, I've got other things I need to do with my life than follow Jesus right now, and besides, this sin that I want to do really sounds like a good time. That's the reason we're told twice in eight verses that Jesus is coming soon, that the time is near. 
Because there's an urgency to this. An urgency to obedience. And a desire on God's part to bless us as we obey Him. Amen? His desire is not to discipline us for unfaithfulness, but to bless us and reward us for obedience. And the need for obedience is urgent on all of our parts. This is who Jesus is. And He is near. He is coming soon. How soon is soon? Your guess is as good as mine. Jesus said, no one knows except the Father. But it's soon. It is sooner now than when you first believed. And in the meantime, you are told, be obedient. And I am told, be obedient and receive God's blessing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we desire here this morning to magnify Jesus Christ, not only in the songs that we sing, not only in the hearing of your word, not only in our offerings and our fellowship and our love for you, Father, but in our obedience to you. May we magnify Jesus Christ and show by our lives and by our conduct that we not only know Jesus, but that he is the most significant thing in our lives. That he is the person who directs and gives grace and his salvation and out of love for him that we reciprocate his love for us in our love for him and our obedience to him as well. Father, help us not to be half-hearted. Help us not to be slack. Help us to remember that the time is near and to apply ourselves to pursuing him with all of our hearts, not in fear, but out of love, because He is the God who loves us. Father, we thank You for Your marvelous revelation about Your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.